0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the EOVC podcast. I'm David, and I'm joined as usual by Andrea, as my co-founder. Today, we have Lucille Cornet with us. Lucille is a partner at 8 Roads, an 11 billion USD global venture fund with offices across the globe. 8 Roads invests in companies at Series B stage and helps them scale up internationally. They have 450 portfolio companies globally, of which 60, 60 are IPOs and many unicorns, such as Alibaba, Toast, Flywire, Chewy, High Bulb, Neo4j, or Fever. Lucille is part of the European team uh, over at Eight Roads, and she is a French national born in Toulouse, but based in London for 15 years now. She focuses on anything SaaS and fintech at Series B. She became one of the youngest female partners in Europe, being promoted partner in 21 at just 33 years old. That is amazing. Congrats, Lucille, by the way. Her investments include companies such as Spendesk, LeoCare, Amenitas, Reveal or Think Insurance. Outside of work, Lucille is a mom of two daughters loves adventurous travel and cooking. She is very extrovert and loves meeting new people, and we're super excited to meeting her as well today. You know what to do if you're listening to the show and love it. Drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values. values, values.
1: United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new new beginnings.
2: Let's start acting. Acting acting acting.
0: In a world where podcasts outnumber humans, we try at EUVC to be mildly more interesting. Tune in at EU.VC to watch this episode instead of just listening. EU.VC, where the extraordinary is just another Monday.
1: This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured.
2: To anyone in our audience who who heard Alibaba and thought, what the fuck is that? Well, that is Alibaba pronounced in a Portuguese manner.
0: <laughs> that was too funny. I think Alibaba is the is the Danish pronunciation. But let's let's see, let's see we'll solve this 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 argument. Let's do that. My now. heavy
1: French accent.
2: Please confirm that it is Alibaba.
1: Alibaba. <laughs> How is that?
0: Yes. That sounded that sounded French. That sounded French. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've
2: heard it. I've heard it too many times in the, in in the mouth of Jason Calacanis. I think. So, Lucille, <laughs> with with this funny introductory note, let's get into how you how you got into venture. Let me just say one thing to the audience: you are in for a ride wild, ride wild ride. Because Lucille has quite a personality, and when David said that she enjoys doing adventurous sports. We had a small asterisk here that said, Bolivia, Uzbekistan, Iran, south of China, Lofoten Islands, climbed Mont Blanc. And she still has Patagonia and Japan on her list. So my God, Lucille, you are quite the personality. (laughs)
1: Yeah, look, I love, I love adventures, both, uh, both in, uh, I guess, professional life and, and, and personal life. I have uh, two young daughters now, so a bit harder to go trekking in, in Bolivia uh, uh, or Uzbekistan, but uh, hoping to, uh, to go back on, the, on those trips with them in a, in a few years. On the way, I got into venture to answer your, your initial question. So, you know, I was reflecting when you asked, and it, it was a bit serendipitous, and at the moment, it made me think of a quote. I'm reading this book, uh, uh, Amp It Up by, uh, Frank Slootman, the, uh, CEO of, uh, of Snowflake. And at the beginning of the book, he's talking a little bit about his career and how he got his first job. And he's just saying, initially, when you start your career, you should just, you know, try to pick a, an industry that's going to flourish. And he makes that analogy. He says, are you in a, in a lift that goes up or a lift that goes down? And I was reflecting probably for anyone in tech, whether it was in VC or entrepreneur or training startups, like the last 10 years in Europe, have have been exceptional. There are very few industries that are growing that fast. And so I think, uh, you know, I started working in VC in 2012. uh, So a little while ago now. And I I remember at the time it, it was a tiny industry, right? So things even like FinTech, those terms didn't exist. And so, you know, I vividly remember thinking, it can only go up right like the way you know you could you could tell how large the uh tech industry was in the u.s but also just the way the world is going young generation uh digitalization so i i, I could really feel like it, it has to be the, the place to be and uh and obviously i don't regret that choice and i think the growth has been probably even faster than i had imagined so i was looking at the numbers when we were preparing this and um even this year which is a pretty tough year you could tell and um on both the vc and the and the tech sector in in Europe, I think we're going to be like something around fifty billion dollars VC money invested in Europe, which is you know six times what it was ten years ago. So it just shows like how big the industry has has become. and I think uh, you know i feel I feel lucky and privileged to be part of it.
2: So do David and I for sure as well. I want to ask you because I know you've you've also, been politically active? And I'd love to ask you a bit about the public sector and, and, and why you ended up going for tech rather than, uh, than, than public sector work.
1: Yeah, I always got really interested in politics and I think there are some similarities with investing because um, you know you need strong conviction, you're meeting a lot of people. I certainly love meeting people and I'm curious about their stories. So I think there are a couple of interesting parallels. And um, when I was 16 or 17, I think I got involved back in France, back in Toulouse, my, my hometown, uh, I got involved with, um, with regional politics and got uh, really excited at the time. And once I was in, I really hated it <laughs> because I realized how slow things were moving. I was impressed by how much paper there still was, how much red tape, um, you know, just how slow public affairs are moving. Uh, and I think I'm far too impatient for that. And so I think it was a it was an interesting realization that I had to be in an industry that was moving faster. Uh, and that's one thing i really I really like with the tech industry is is you know it, it's changing by the minute. And especially now, um you know if you look at what's happening in AI, and I'm not talking about the whole uh, open AI uh, drama <laughs> uh, at the moment, but more broadly, like the the tech innovation happening in that space, it's it's really, Moving, you know, by the day, so you know, I didn't know anything about vector database or, you know, you know, prompt engineering a year ago, and um, and so every week you're learning something new. It's, it's it's fascinating.
2: And on the note of moving fast, let's move fast to your pivotal moment in your life and tell us about how that shaped you as an investor.
1: I'm not sure it's a pivotal moment. Uh, I was more thinking of something I realized probably quite late in my life, and uh, I thought you know I could share today. It's a funny realization that I think in your early years in your career there's a lot of learning, and then in my recent years I've been unlearning a lot of the, a lot of these things. So what do I mean by that? If you start like early in venture, you have all those statements, right? Like you keep hearing those you know blanket statements. So if you want to scale up, you need to hire top talent. You need to hire people that have done it before, that have seen the movie. Even sometimes you hear the same you know phrases, which you know I find hilarious and. And, and you know, that's an advice that, you know, most VCs would give to their founders. And it's funny because now, like, I, I, having the benefit of maybe, you know, close to 10 portfolio companies and uh, 45 with with the European team and my colleagues, a lot of those hires didn't work out, right? So we we did hire in a lot of our companies the shiny CV, the guy that came with a big package or, or the gal uh, that came with a big package and we did the search and so on. And then you realize, oh, like, you know, and of course, some of them do work, right, so I don't want to say they were they were bad, but there was a lot of disappointment at the same time, I've seen people you know from like tier five cities uh you know that never did a job before and that have really learned on the job and like became excellent leaders and so I think what has that has told me that you need to go and see a little bit behind those like easy statements right like and In VCs, you have a lot of those constantly, right? So software shouldn't have too many services or hardware is bad. At the moment, like people hate consumer, like, yeah, just do SaaS and why, right? (laughs) like, (laughs) who decided that? And so I think it took me a while to probably feel confident also enough to like see a little bit beyond this thing and also to disagree and be like, you know what? Like I I quite like this or I quite disagree with that statement. I think differently. And so, yeah. Again, that that was probably a late realization that sometimes you also need to unlearn some of those, you know, easy, you know, advice that you get and that everyone keeps repeating.
2: David, I saw you had a note that said the importance of learning and unlearning in venture capital. I'd love to ask you if you want to come in on this.
0: No, I was actually I was actually kind of just reading everything that uh, that Lucila shared with us in advance and just taking taking some notes and I I, I think like I, I reminisce whenever I hear stuff within you know similar to what you said Lucille I reminisce to like some of our early episodes or I can't remember if it was Ennis Hooley or William McQuillan that said that VC is one of these weird careers where you do a lot of kind of you look back and you try to rationalize what happened in the past and to justify your actions based on that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny. It's like almost like creating self-fulfilling prophecies after they happen. And I think you kind of you kind of mentioned that in some way or form. It's like you're not you're always learning and the feedback cycles are so are so long. So it's it's nothing much to add, Andreas, just kind of a, a small note, I'd say.
1: Yeah, I try to always think like, don't take the easy path, right? So a lot of our job is to say no. And sometimes they are very easy way. It's just so easy to say no, right? There's always a reason to say no because you know otherwise there would be obvious investments right so most companies we look at you could look at it for a second and be like ha this market is too small or that team is never going to scale like out of like you know uh Ghent, belgium or like who you know how many companies have been built you know from belgium that became unicorn right so he, there are always like things where you're like it, and and so i think for us the challenge is like don't go the easy way right like trying to see a little bit behind and think the the harder path and say like, is there something like, what could go, what could go right here? Like, what, what am I missing? What are the others not seeing that I might see? Most of the time we still have to say no, because that's just, <laughs> I can't do a thousand investments in a year, uh, but, but I try to, re- you know, to remember that.
2: It is a funny paradox that you point out that at the same time as we're an industry that heralds first principle thinking, we're also an industry with a lot of rules of thumb <laughs> or, or generic advice. I think the truth is actually the first, first principle of thinking, and then we have the rules of thumb that apply sometimes and sometimes don't, and what probably makes a really good message that they're contrarian when they need to be, uh, and when it's right to be, because we have many in our audience, of course, that are, find themselves in these situations and navigate them, and you're you're telling us it's a confidence thing. I'd love to ask you how do you, what have you had any tactics that you've employed to really build up that trust in yourself to to actually say, hold on a second, I, I think differently on this point.
1: Yeah, that's that's another thing I've been thinking a lot about is a lot of our job and similar for investors and, and tech entrepreneurs is to talk about what's going to happen, right? So like most of the time you look at these companies and, you know, you would never invest for what it is today, right? Like the small businesses, lots of questions. So the reason you're investing is because of what you think it's going to become, right? They're They're like, babies or teenagers and you, you want to be in when they grow up and see what they what they what they blossom and become you know become leader. And so a lot of our job and I think similar for entrepreneurs is to really paint that story and say like, am I gonna am I gonna convince you about what I think will happen. So I have my uh, my opinion, my conviction, either as an investor or as an entrepreneur, and that's what I think will happen. How good am I to convey that conviction to others and you know that's something that I think sometimes entrepreneurs don't see is we also need to do that because I you know we work in a team and um, a lot of my job is to convince my partners and then my investment committee uh, about what I see. So um, I think sometimes like a lot of uh, a lot of entrepreneurs think like I convinced Lucille, so I'm good to go but <laughs> unfortunately I have a bunch of other people to convince as you know as it should be. and so it's also a lot of the part of the VC is is to be able to convey crisply and explain that excitement, like, look, that's what I'm saying, right? The market may look small today, but let me tell you, this and this is going to change. And, you know, there's the typical Uber story, right? Like, you know, if you were looking at the, uh, you know, the cab market, you would have gotten it wrong because they grew the market, you know, or same for Airbnb, like there was no market, right? So, you know, sometimes it's really more like, are you, you know, are you bringing people with you on that journey? Uh, and helping them see what you what you're saying um and um yeah and 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 also i think to your point the amount of conviction you have in doing so is pretty important so sometimes and oftentimes in our team we would you know say like i don't necessarily agree but i see the level of conviction that you have and so i'll, I'll support you for that so i think also doing that with you know strong amount of conviction matters right because it's not just um Theoretical exercise, uh, you know, there is there is a lot of intent, right? Like, I, you know, you want to do that deal, you want to be involved in that company for ten years, right? You want to deploy twenty million euros. I mean, it's a big, it's it's a big thing, right? So, uh, being able to convey that excitement and 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 um, and show that level of conviction is is pretty important in our in our job.
2: I'd love to ask you just before we go to the take a stand section, and I know that we're bombing the <laughs> the whole whole script and timeline of this interview but i want to ask you because you have a rather unique experience in that in that you're so many at eight roads and in mo- most european partnerships we're talking three or four people um and, and well, we're five and partners right maybe so it's some, products,
1: some... not as big but probably a bit bigger than others yeah,
2: yeah but, but but as a firm you're, you're you're bigger right how do you make sure that you have the whole firm with you and i I have a I have a feeling that it's not only the partnerships that the coaster shots right. You want to make sure that the whole firm is with you. So how do you how do you think about building that firm belief in a company or in a potential investment um, rather than just your own commitment?
1: Yeah, and you know that's that's exactly the art for us, right? So for people who are not as familiar with the behind the scenes of a venture capital fund, like effectively when you're looking at a transaction and investing in the company, there are effectively like three, three streams that are going on. There is one stream where usually I'm actually selling myself to the entrepreneur because most of the companies we look at are, uh, you know, great companies. They have a lot of options, a lot of other funds that are talking to them. Um, so we need to be showing our best selves. How can we help them? you know do they want to expand in the us do they need help on the tech side on the people side um i want to give them references of people that have worked with me so there's kind of this you know what we call selling which you know is is where i'm actually selling myself and showing that i could be a good partner to them at the same time i'm also buying right so i'm also forging my own conviction do i really want to invest in this company and, and and you know, need you need to do those those same those things at the same time because if you keep asking questions for three weeks. And then you're like, oh, now I like it. Let me tell you how great I am. Like, you're too late, right? <laughs> because all the other funds have, you know, uh, built the relationship. So you need to do those two things at the same time. And then there is a third pass, which is, I also need to update my team so that, you know, I don't spend three weeks getting my conviction. And then once I'm ready, I'm like, hey, guys, I have this interesting company in Berlin. You know, trust me, it's going to be great. We need to pay like super top dollar. <laughs> it's really competitive. And then it's not going to work, right? Because people are like, I've never heard of this. What is even that market? <laughs> what is Lucille doing? So I need to like keep them also in check and make sure I'm bringing people with me and be like, Hey, I'm really interested in this thing. So you're constantly on that fine line and, and, you know, you're doing all those different, you know, streams at, at the same time, which, you know, is fascinating. But, but yeah, you, um, you're always kind of thinking, am I, you know, I'm telling the team I'm really excited, but am I, you know, am I really excited? Like, am, am I there yet? So, you you know, you're trying to, like, you know, keep the balance.
2: Let's go to the take a stand round that I promised us before. Take a stop. Now, Lucille, I would love to ask you to comment on this quote, a little bit of chaos is good for you.
1: Yeah, Andres, so you asked me to pick one one quote I liked. And, uh, you know, I really smiled when I I read that quote uh, because it really resonated with me. Uh, I'm one of those people, I think you have two people in the world, like zero mailbox or (laughs) 4,000 mailbox. So I'm I'm definitely one of the 4,000, you know, unread uh, mailbox. And, um, you know, one of my partners at Roadstuff or Hebel, uh, he keeps saying, relax, nothing is under control. And um, in a way, you know, that quote, you know really helped me in my career because when you're in vc you know one good analogy i like to i like to take is it feels a bit like you're in a rally car but you're sitting at the back so you can choose the car but once you've chosen the car you're in and so you're in this, in this bumpy road just sitting at the back you're not driving you, you know there are sharp turns they're like obstacles and you kind of you can give a bit of advice right so sometimes you're like ah avoid the rocks <laughs> turn left but most of the time the founder as he should be is the one driving and so I think you, you need to enjoy that journey because you know there will be you know there will be tough moments there will be sharp turns and you know I think sometimes the crunch and other media make it look like it's a linear path to success like it's not right every single company have uh, those moments and so um, you need to enjoy the ride because it's not only go, uh, only about being on the podium at the end. this is the whole journey to get there.
0: Lucille, um, this is probably the bit I was I was looking uh, forward to the most, um, because I know you you really like um, sME vertical sets. and it's something that we haven't really spoken. That much about on the podcast, but we're actually doing an investment within that space. I'm actually really curious to to tap into your brain. So let's maybe let's maybe start with the basics. So, how what is SME vertical SaaS from your perspective, and and why do you love it?
1: So SME vertical SaaS is is really this idea of building uh, on purpose software uh, for a specific vertical, uh, which is going to be a system of record, uh, a, a software used every day in this industry. So, you know, I'm thinking the construction industry, uh, hospitality, uh, hair salons, uh, restaurants, and, and, um, and if you can become, you know, the system of record, uh, hopefully you're really well-placed to then upsell new functionalities and expense from that initial starting point to a much broader solution.
0: The second part of that question, why do you love it? And I I really want to deep dive here. And and just to to any listener uh, listening in, when we did the introduction of Lucille, some of the companies that we mentioned were actually, they they fit the SME verticals as kind of definition, right Lucille?
1: Yeah, we've we've made a, a bunch of investments and and some very successful ones in the in the space. In the US, we were investors in Toast POS, which is a software for vertical software for restaurants. Uh, they have a strong payment component as well. Uh, now they're a listed company, eight billion market cap in um, in New York. Uh, I think I was looking at the latest numbers. They have 1.2 billion ARR, which is. Uh, pretty impressive size. Uh, in Europe, we've made other investments. Um, uh, last year, I led our investment in amenities, which is a Barcelona-based company selling into hotels. Uh, so similar uh, similar concept really being that system of record in the hotel space, you call, you call it property management system. And starting from the, you know, the main software, but really expanding into payments, distribution, uh, you know, website creation, channel management, and, and so on. A couple of years back, we were uh, lead investors in a company called Treatwell that I think a lot of people in the u k will will know uh, which was marketplace and software for you know hair and uh, health and beauty salon. It was a great wow. outcome they, they sold to a Japanese company called uh, recruit and uh, the reason I'm smiling is because that you know that was actually a really good <laughs> example of a company where a lot of people were like. This is too small of a market. Like that's never going to scale. Uh, I remember also, like, uh, it wasn't my investment. Is my colleague Davo, but, um, a lot of people said there, there is no one that did it in the US. So it can't is, you know, it can't be done. Right. Like hence, you know, no one will do it in Europe. And, uh, and treat was a very good example of, you know, scaling very successfully, uh, you know, from like initially like a, a booking, you know, a booking very simple tool initially, right? Like booking an appointment at the hairdresser, but from them. Becoming like the system of record, and then you know enabling payments, enabling salon management, and then you you know you really grow your position in um, in that industry.
0: So there you see you gave few examples in a couple of different um, different sectors, so healthcare, uh, wellness, right, but also uh, like hotels. What is that like leisure? Whatever the term of that of that, of yeah. that industry. Follow up question on my side is: Which specific industry or sectors do you think that are like ripe for disruption from this vertical SaaS perspective?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting you ask that because I'm asking myself the <laughs> exact same question. So we would <laughs> love to do more investments, and so we're constantly thinking what could be good industries. I mean, I think there are a couple of you know there are probably a couple of criteria we can think about. Uh, I think it works well in a very fragmented yeah. industry. So, uh, you know, hotels being a good example of that, but you could think like construction company, uh, you could think like vet practices, right? So like smaller buyers, but a lot of them. Uh, So I think that's one, you know, one good criteria. Another criteria is I think um, there's a lot of opportunity if the industry is still not very digital. And so again, if you think about um, construction but hotels were the same like you know they still live in the 80s and as much as I love the, the, the industry like sometimes you see the screens I don't know if you ever looked when you do a check-in like sometimes you see the screen on the other side of the person the receptionist and you're like that can't be yeah. I mean it looks like <laughs> it looks like something you know blue and blue dark blue and, and white out of the you know straight out of it the It looks 18, like
0: right. V0.1 of Salesforce right? And <laughs> whatever whatever that program,
1: Right so like it's not even cloud uh you know they they do physical backups i mean it's hard to believe right and so those to me are like you know really ripe for, for for disruption especially as you think of new generations going into those jobs so i think that's been one very interesting factor like if you think in the restaurant industry and it will be the same in construction is you have those young people like you know going into the workforce uh now like probably in the age of like buying you know businesses like okay starting a small construction company and they're like I'm not going to work with that, right? I want something on mobile. I want something that looks like monday.com, right? Like I don't want, <laughs> I want something that I can log in and out. Uh, it's all going to be in the cloud. It's all going to be super intuitive. Potentially now with AI, it might even be like, you know, just a search bar. Like there's not going to be a thousand menus. Yeah. Um, you know, another big issue in those jobs is the training. So all those companies typically have a lot of turnover. So uh, restaurants is one, but, you know, I can think construction is the same where, you have a lot of people that come and go. So you can't afford to spend three weeks, you know, um, training someone in the system and literally that person is gone, you know, the next week. Um, so again, like it needs to be, you know, super simple, you know, very intuitive. And so I, that's why I'm quite excited about what new tools can do because, you know, now with the, um, the improvements in, in cloud computing and design and so on, you can do things that are super easy to understand. Like you can work yourself, you don't need training at all, right? Like you can, you can gamify the onboarding. So there are a lot of cool, a lot of cool things. Uh, another thing, sorry, <laughs> I'll keep on going, but I like that space. Another thing that I think wasn't possible a few years back is this whole concept of embedded finance. Um, so a lot of those vertical SaaS play, they, um, they're, they're very good for also embedding uh, payments and fintech in general. And that's, that's a very new concept. So that's why also I think. These things haven't happened in the past because the ability to to issue cards, uh, embed payments, embed lending, you know, credit facilities into software and to sell it to individual businesses or customers is still very new. And again, I'm really excited about what you could do, right? Because suddenly, you know, you you could do very, very simple things like, you know, improve like the experience meaningfully. And, uh, you know, another thing is a lot of those small businesses, they, they, they pay like crazy fees, right? Because they don't know. They're not experts, right? So. You look at what they pay, like you know, in a, again a small probably construction company or a smaller uh, hotel in fees, like you know, uh, card fees for their physical POS. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous, right? Like they're, they're getting, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's really it's really unfair. And so again, why wouldn't you be able to do, you know, uh, uh, online payments or even the come to account, which is completely free? Uh, you know, there are a lot of interesting ways you could um, you could uh, you know bring innovation here.
0: You know, I think you ended there with, with a great example, uh, embedded finance and like card fees, uh, you know, as, as a very specific one. But, you know, when you, when you talk about it, fragmented customer base, no di- like not digital from kind of an infrastructure perspective, but even from like a mindset of the of the workforce and, and the industry as a whole. So why the hell? And here, let's all put our investor hat. Like, why favoring uh, SME vertical SaaS as an investment space? Because it sounds challenging, right? It's fragmented. It's not digital. You know, it just sounds tough. Like, why the hell go after it?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and you're right. I mean, it is it is challenging. I think another thing you haven't mentioned is especially in Europe, it's not easy to go international because typically those markets are quite different. So you have something that works for Spain. It might not work for France. So uh, you're right. I mean, why, why go after this, this space? I think a couple of couple of things. One thing is, I think they're pretty counter cyclical. And I like that, especially in this market. Uh, So while, you know, selling to SMEs can be difficult, it's also pretty concept cyclical because, you know, there will always be hairdressers. There will always be hotels. And so you're a little bit less dependent of like, you know, the macroeconomy. Like, you know, when you sell enterprise, for example, like HR SaaS, right? Like, or uh, suddenly like, you know, people are like, oh, I'm sorry, like, no more budget this year. Like it's a budget freeze, and you're like, oh, okay. Like <laughs> it might take me another year to get that contract. It, it, you know, in SME, you could, you could, you know, you just knock at another door. So I like that about it. I think the 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 second reason we, you know, we think the the space is exciting is this concept of, of upselling. So what I was mentioning about Toast is entry uh, twelve is this ability to start with a system of record. And once you have engagement, once you have users that log in every day, use your tool for bookings or use your tool for, um, you know, booking rooms in the hotel, then you're really well placed to add to this. And I think that's how those company can go from being. You know 200 300 million company to multi-billion dollar companies like like toasted it's not by just sending to more restaurants because at some point you're going to run out of restaurants but it's by really expanding the solution and um i think in the case of toast like they do financing they do work you know workforce um staffing and planning you know they really expand it you know, to manage most of the flows of the restaurant. And so I think that's a, you know, that that's a very interesting part of the model. And I think that's how we, you know, we see some of those companies have really the potential to become larger than some people think initially.
2: Can he ask you, Lucille, because you're investing at the stage that you are, so rather late for Europe <laughs> and, sec- and and Series B, um, what does the, how should I put it, value add model look like for you in this space? Because... I imagine, as you said, it's a bit about becoming. The, as an example, the registry uh, for 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 one specific type of client in this space, and then, well, I would imagine that there's quite a beauty to to actually finding the one that you believe are the best in. As an example, that for restaurants, and then saying, okay. These guys that we think are the best, they're maybe they maybe they don't have the biggest uh, uh, line of customers, but they're the ones that execute best and they're the ones with the best product. So we invest in this one, we put 20 million in, and that 20 million will actually be put to work by doing acquisitions in places where they have less growth potential because their product is <laughs> crabby, but they have a big installed base that you can then service with, with that superior product. Is that part of the value add or or how do you think about your your value add as an investor?
1: Yeah, it could. I think 312 grew that way, for example. So 312 was really an M&A story where um, uh, they started in the UK. They were initially called Wahanda and then they made a lot of acquisitions. So they made one acquisition in France, one in um, Germany. One in Netherlands, which was called Treatwell, and then they took their name. But you know, candidly, a lot of the investments we make are mostly to fund to fund mm-hmm. just investment in growth. So you know, it, yeah. it could be m but I think at our stage, if I look at most of our investments, it's still like let's grow the team, let's push the go-to-market, yeah. let's spend more money to do acquisition, and let's also potentially finance those um, add-on products. So. Um, you may have a lot of traction on the initial product, but you haven't had the time to build product two, product three. So a lot of our money would typically go to that. Let's let's have a you know two squads of you know product people building you know an add-on in payments or an add-on in you know in distribution or marketplace, for example.
2: I have one final question, and that is, you you touched on in, on it, which is AI, of course, in this space, AI, and then this is probably. Even, even more of a, uh, how should I put it, um, general interest question in the sense that AI for us in the VC bubble seems like it's everywhere and we're so ready for adoption. But then every time I meet the SME sec- segment, <laughs> I, I, I'm always surprised at how far we are from adoption. Uh, I'd love to ask you how, how do you think about that in this space specifically?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I think you're right, like I've been impressed because there's some areas where I think it will go way slower than we think. And equally, there's also adoption that is very fast, right? So I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, on the coding front, I would say probably most of the developers in our companies are already using, you know, generative AI, right? It's like huge productivity boost. Other example, everything that has to do with content, if you're doing a community, and you probably know that being in the content business, uh, if you're having like, you know, uh, uh, push emails, if you're doing, um, uh, you know, a a market report, if you're doing SEO for your website, much better results with Gemini, right? Like, so that the adoption on that has been almost instant. Um, So I'll give you an example, like uh, the, the company amenities in the hospitality tech space that I mentioned, they do um, websites for their customers, so they, they would build the website of the of the property and um it used to be quite t- time in- intensive. I mean they have like frameworks, but you know you still have someone who like look at the picture and like, okay, it's like in Rio, and you know now it's fully automated, It's fully gen AI, you say it's in Rio, I want something like the you know you know fun and relaxed and luxury, and the website is done right like just it, the, the improvement is like 10x right. And then to your point, there are some other areas where I think it might take 10 years uh, because the adoption curve, especially of the end customer might take longer. So again, I'll give you an example. Uh, there are a lot of questions which I find really interesting at the moment about what's gonna happen to the front end. So if you look at your your Salesforce or your Workday or all those like big you know SaaS companies of maybe the last decade, lots of menus, you know, even I was looking at zoom, right? Like there's like two settings, like menu, menu bars. And so there are a lot of people now saying like all of that is going to be gone, right? Like there will just be a bar, either it's voice operated or text operated, but you're going to be like, I just want to change my background and it's going to change your background. Like you won't be clicking around looking for where the button is again. And so there are a lot of questions around like what, what is the front end of the future going to look like? Is there going to be a front end, right? My, you know, so maybe then zoom might be embedded in in windows i don't know right like is that you know is there going to be you know icons like we know you know i don't know like it could you know if, if everything is in one box like there might not even be a desktop anymore right so there are a lot of interesting questions that being said like do i think you know the hotelier or the the doctor operating in a small practice in my road is gonna have like something that is fully voice operated with no front end probably not yet right that's that might take Ten years, so so that's that's the paradox. Is that I think some things will be very quick, and then some other things might, you know, take a while to really see through.
2: I actually think that our our smartphones and our computers are going to be, how would you put it, the harpinger. Uh, how fast they move as platforms is going to be the harpinger of tr- of of adoption in so many other places, because once once everyone is used to not engaging with buttons on their stupid phones. But just telling it the other day, I had to put an alarm coming with a certain recurrency on my phone. And I was like, how do I do this? Because I needed it to not be every every Tuesday, but I needed it to be a bit offset and that kind of thing. It's like technically should be so simple. But just because the UI isn't made for it, I can't do that on, on the alarm, right? But there's no reason why I wouldn't just be able to tell my Android. I need one on this day, this day and that day. And then it would just do it right um and I think that once everyone's used to all consumer complex products we're gonna see it adopting in, in in our business life
1: I was gonna say the same a lot of the innovation in uh, in in soft in enterprise software comes from the consumer world right so typically you you see that consumers are, are adopting faster and in a way when I talk about the developer it's kind of prosumer right so it's kind of it's really interesting right it's coming at, at bottom up right which i think a lot of people didn't expect that was the big revolution obviously with chat gpt is like it came very bottom up right so it wasn't like your company who said like hey now let's use ai it was just people playing around and they were like wow i can be 10 times more productive with this like i'm just gonna use that right so it it, it, it almost like you know consumer style adoption as opposed to be enterprise yeah
0: and that wraps up our small segment here, talking about SME vertical SaaS, where we discussed a bit sectors that are ripe for disruption. And Lucille, I love that you mentioned construction as we started the pre-recording with me bitching about my own construction project. But that's not the only sector that's ripe for disruption. Lucille shared like, the pain. <laughs> Anything? Yeah, I'm feeling the pain. I'm, I'm freaking feeling the pain. I need, I need you guys to do an investment in that space. <laughs> Please stop that for me. But um, basically, anything that is fragmented or very like not digital, from an infrastructure mindset perspective, being mentioned there. We also um, expanded a bit on the reasons for favoring vertic- uh, SME vertical SaaS, counter cyclical nature, core system with high stickiness, less competitive in vertical ma- markets, and we ended. With trying to predict the future and AI. We asked a lot of questions. We shared a few insights, but we gave no answers. So if you're interested about that, go back roughly a minute and you can hear that. But now it's time for the shout out segment. Lucille, I'd like to ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor, Angel or LP for being awesome. And of course, do share the story behind that awesomeness.
1: Yeah. So uh, for this segment, I, I thought I would, um, I would give a shout out to uh, a person called Kevin Kimber. He's um, a venture partner with us, but he's also a fellow uh, uh, angel investor in a lot of our businesses. And um, he's, a, he's a great mentor to a lot of um, a lot of CEOs in our, in our portfolio. So Kevin was one of the co-founders of uh, ServiceNow. Uh, for those who don't know ServiceNow, it's, a, it's an enterprise giant uh, uh, SaaS company, originally from the U.S. Now I think they're are 140 billion market cap. And Kevin was the first person uh, on the ground in Europe. He grew uh, the company to um, a huge scale. And then he left and went on to uh, lead parts of businesses like Zora, uh, SAP in the U.K. Then he became a CEO of one of our portfolio companies called Remilia, uh, which is a company in the um, a receivable uh, automation space. uh, And he helped uh, sell that company to Blackline, another listed company in in New York. So, you know, huge amount of experience from, you know, growing businesses, leading businesses, uh, selling businesses. And um, the reason why I like working with Kevin is he's incredibly humble. And um, that's one thing I realized with people that are almost like so successful that then they, you know, they're, they're so kind, right? So they, 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 they're they, beyond, you know, probably are they today. And Kevin is one of those people. He's very humble. He's, um, he's a great listener, which also I think is something I rarely see, right? Because sometimes you meet successful people and they have to tell you, right? They're like, they feel like they know and they're just like, you know, they they, they have to tell you how to do things. Kevin is not like that at all. Like he spends a lot of time listening to uh, people quite intently before he gives advice. And he's always super humble about like, look, it's not because it worked for me that it's going to work for you. So he's very aware of not just replicating one recipe of success and pretending that this is like cookie cutter approach. And it's just very fun, which again, I, you know, I, I, I think we'll come back to that point, but I think in life. It's important to work with people uh, you know you enjoy having around, and uh, you know Kevin is one of them.
2: Amazing, Lucille. Now I want to go to our three biggest learning segment and ask you to give us the three biggest learnings in your last ten years.
1: Yeah, I uh, I felt a bit like a therapy when I prepared these questions, and I have to say they're, they're quite. Uh... We
2: are. We are. We are. LPs ourselves, so we try to be VC uh, therapists.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Moonlighting as VC as therapist.
0: If you're interested, you can go to our website and register for a free Your consultation. <laughs> we won't charge the first that.
1: <laughs> exactly. Come and talk to us. Uh, you know, no, the, the first one I picked is um, we've been thinking a lot about... What makes a great founder? right? That's at the essence of our job, effectively, that's the you know the question you're asking yourself all the time. And the question is easy, the answer is not. And um, there is a lot of literature on the topic, and you know there are a lot of people like saying you need people that are immigrants, or you need people that are very young or you need people that are experienced, or you need people that have studied or people that haven't studied. And in my you know humble experience, I haven't seen any of that. So we didn't see any correlation b- between any of these things. And so, it, you know, I was trying to reflect, so what did I see? What was, what? What are the common traits of my most successful founders? And one that I found is really velocity. So speed of action. And I, I'll give you an example. It's, it's a lot of small things, but you can notice it in the day-to-day, right? So they just reply faster on WhatsApp. They just, you know, after you make an introduction, they, they jump on it straight away. When you have a conversation and there is a follow up, the follow up is two days, uh, you know, in two days and not, you know, in two weeks. And that, you know, cadence that, that you know, that velocity of action makes a huge difference in aggregate. And I think it's not only those small things, but it's more the pace that, you know, they they then like, you know. A project to the rest of the company because usually once they behave like that, the whole company follows that cadence. And, you know, I think there is really a thing that you can out-execute competitors. And again, it's something that talked a lot about because people always talk about ideas. Like, oh, I have a special idea, but idea, you know, an idea is not that special. Like what's difficult is executing. And not to say, obviously, there is, you know, some products and some innovation and some, you know, some tech differentiation, but there's so much you can do with with just better execution. And I think a lot of that is speed. And, um, you know, another thing is like failing fast, right? Uh, You know, something's not working fine, right? Like, let's act on it. And, um, you know, I know it's easier said than done. But that's that's one thing I think that I've seen in, I I guess, my experience and, you know, my, uh, you know, my learning with entrepreneurs is is just, you know, great people move faster. No question.
0: Lucille, could I ask you uh, maybe a challenging question there? I, I partially agree with you, yes, and I see that a lot with the people that we work with that we love, where we have very kind of you know quick, quick lead time between a conversation and something happening. It's really easy. It's it's a, it's a beautiful sensation, right, working with a person like that. But taken to its its extreme, it's actually a bad thing. And I'm I remember reading, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, and I'll I'll name it because there's no problem in naming. It, but uh, Stebbing's mentioned that he was welcoming um, a company called Troba. On the podcast, and that they had a work culture like any other: Monday to Thursday, twelve plus hours in the office; Friday, ten plus hours, uh, and everyone's expected to be reachable at, reachable and working outside these hours, including weekends. Which I actually don't agree with that view. So, how do you think about it, and where do you where do you in your in your own kind of mental framework, where do you kind of set the line and the limits?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are two things in there, right? I think working fast and working hard are two different things. So, I didn't necessarily mean like. <laughs> you know, from working 24 seven and, you know, like, you know, ignoring like, you know, the lows. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I think you're very right. You know, there are certainly guardrails around culture and, um, you know, working fast also doesn't necessarily mean changing direction all the time. Right. So I think one danger you can have with people that are really quick is that, you know, they're like, Oh, okay. Like, uh, you know, forget what I was saying a month ago, like now we're going to do this. And that can be very disruptive to an organization because they lack, leadership. So it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, being too distracted, but I think it's more like the state of mind of, uh, you know, quick cycles, let's make progress, let's see, right? And, um, or, you know, quick no's, right? Let's not do that, but let's decide because most of the time, like more time is not going to lead to a better decision. So there there are some times where more time might lead to a better decision. Um, You know, there are things where you don't want to take shortcuts, right? Like Compliance <laughs> you know uh, 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 legal things right, like as we've seen with a lot of fintech like too many shortcuts you know can definitely lead to lead you into trouble, but on uh, so many other things, I think being too theoretical sometimes doesn't help, so I give you an idea like you know oftentimes a lot of my boards we discuss going international and usually what happens is people have this very top down you know they look at all the markets and you know, they look at the size of the market and then they have like Harvey balls or color coding and they're like, you know, this is like, you know, a bit larger, but easier. And my experience is like, usually it's like, it's not true. Like, just, you know, just go there, start selling small, right? Like, put, put three people on the ground, like consultants or like fly people on the ground, take a rework. We don't have to make it like a, um, a big investment and like we're opening an office. Like, just, just try it out, validate. Your experience, and let's do it gradually. Like, is it working? Like, how is the sales cycle? What are you hearing? Okay, cool. It's positive. Let's do more. Like, you know, not three people, six people, right? As opposed to have this grand, like, let's spend three months doing a whole matrix of like how deep are those different geos, which, you know, is a bit of a, you know, theoretical, like a bit too, like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, theoretical exercise.
2: I'd love to take us to your second learning because. Everyone in the office, uh, in the audience here, we, we have so many learnings from from Lucille and so much to unpack on every one of them. So that's why I'm driving us to the next one.
1: Yeah, and and uh, I don't want to make it look like you know I'm telling things because I think they're very much like things I also you know aspire to do. So uh, uh, you know, I, I, it's it's also like you know part of, of my goals. But uh, the, the second one I picked that I picked is this growth mindset, and and what I like about the growth mindset is. Really focusing on the progress as opposed to where things are. And, you know, it's, it, it goes a little bit what we were talking about earlier about like thinking about companies for what they're going to become. I try to do the same with people, and I think it's, it's, it's good to do that. So, um, looking at how much someone is listening to feedback, how quickly someone is learning as opposed to what they are today as a finished product. And so I would always prefer working with a founder. That is he's open to feedback where I'm having, you know, conversation. And by the way, I might not know better than they do. Right. But at least, you know, we're debating, we're, we're, you know, we're trying, we're learning as opposed to someone who's brilliant, very, very smart, but very set in his, you know, in his opinions.
2: Yeah, and I think that that goes well uh, with one of your earlier comments as to don't necessarily go for a very senior hire who has the Rolodex and has everything because it, it's typically not the the right move for for a startup. Let's go to your final one.
1: yeah, the the final one was you know, not to underestimate the power of building relationships and having you know what I call positive energy. the The reason I mentioned that is you know I've been amazed in my career by how um, subjective a lot of decisions are. And I think people don't realize how it is the case. so, you know, I find that in business, like most, even large exits or large hires or large moves, you know, a lot of them are intuition based. And so, you know, building strong relationships is so important. Uh, it sounds a bit cheesy said like that, but, um, you know, people want to work with other people they enjoy having around. You know, they want to work with fun people. They want to, you know, they want to work with funders that they admire. and And so, you know, a big part of, You know, for example, a successful exit might also just be. I would love to have that person in my organization, right? I would love to have that energy. I would love to have that team because, you know, they're great, right? And so, a lot of founders sometimes I find they're they're building almost secretly and you know hoping that someone notices one day. So it's almost like you know we'll go out and we'll do all the networking later, and they feel that. This is almost like less priority. And I get it, right? Because you're like day to day hustling and you're like, the last thing I want is to be at the conference, you know, with a champagne glass building relationship. Like I'm just trying to close my quarter, but those relationships are so important because that's where a partnership might, you know, land. That's where an MA offer might, you know, happen. That's where you might find a great customer because people have, you know, that great impression of you and they're like, wow that person or that, you know, that CEO really has an interesting vision. I'd love to spend more time with him. And so you wouldn't do that just by staying, you know, in your, in your castle. And, um, so, so I, that, that's an advice I give to my founders, like get out there, don't, don't underestimate the power of, of that side of business building as well.
2: Just before we went into this, this recording, I was prepping for a webinar we're going to do on our roundtable conversation we're going to do on acing LP relationships. And what you stated here is, of course, in the way you stated it around founders and and how they should build. But I'd love to ask you, how does this translate into how you manage LP relationships yourself, how you think about that, both at at 8 Roads, but also you personally uh, as a partner in the firm?
1: Yeah, you're spot on, Andreas, because, um, you know, Risi is the ultimate commoditized industry uh so i you know the big difference between us and for example entrepreneurs is we usually don't have very different product to sell right (laughs) at the end of the day like you know money is money and series b series b whether it's from h roads or someone else so a lot of the differentiation is going to come from the people is going to come from the impression you get when you meet me and you know candidly that's how you win deals right it's it's you know of course like valuation need to be there. Of course, you need to do value adds. And I think those are stable stakes. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's people. It's people. Like, people are probably thinking, do I want Lucille on my board for 10 years, right? Like, is she going to help me? Is she going to, how is she going to behave when it's hard? Is she even going to be around, right? Because there's a lot of turnover in VC, right? So that's another thing. Like, we've seen you know entrepreneurs they raise and then a year later the the, the partner is gone right so, so you get someone else and so back to your question around lps i think stability in the team the culture you're building as a fund again it's it's a little bit hard because those are very subjective and a little bit like fluffy topics so it, it's it's um it's usually a bit hard to lead by we have a great culture and we're so nice but at the end of the day I, you know i think that's that matters you know Hugely, right? And so, for example, one thing we do at Eight Roads is we measure the NPS of our funders. So we ask them every year, on a scale of you know zero to ten, would you recommend someone else to work with Eight Roads? And I think the last one we had ninety, and we're we're extremely proud of that number because if there was only thing one thing I would show to the LPs, that would be that. Because I would say like, you know, in in VC you need money, and then you need funders who want to work with you, right? So, I mean the rest. The rest you can you can make you know, but those are probably the the two main ingredients.
2: Can I ask you a final question on this? Because I'm trying to get you to tease out learnings from your world and context to our audience, who are primarily VCs at smaller smaller firms, right? We all know the differences between being an 11 billion AUM firm versus being a, a 100 million AUM or 50 million. So I'd love to ask you, what do you think that an audience like the typical European Venture Fund, think of that as a prototypical audience here? What do you think that you at Eight Roads have to kind of not teach but share with them on how you manage to build an as good fundraising machine as you have, Um, because in the end, you want to do great deals. You want to win great deals and so on. But in the end, if you don't, if you don't manage to raise well, and in in the end, that's that's where many funds in Europe struggle the most, you're not going to get off the ramp, right? So I'd love to ask you, kind of telling us a bit. Yeah, what you you're, can.
1: you're right, Andreas. And, you know, first of all, I'd say like this year is 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 very difficult, right? So whether you're like an 11 billion U.S. fund or a 20 million fund, it's hard for everyone. So I'm saying like, you know, don't think it's easier. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's been a, a very difficult year, right, for obvious reasons. So, you know, keep it up, I would say, for everyone who is fundraising. But back to your, your question around advice, I don't, I don't know how much I can give advice, but maybe one thought is, it strikes me as very similar to entrepreneurs where the easiest way to convince someone is to have proof points. Right. So you know, showing something is much better than telling something. You know, that's that's just uh, the, the the simple the simple fact. And so I would always try to you know start small. The issue is obviously if you're like a very first like emerging manager, you don't have any portfolio company, right? But as soon as you do, and sometimes
2: yeah, but three second yeah,
1: yeah, as soon as you do, and you know, sometimes also you could you know do a first close, do a couple of investments, and then continue raising the 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 fund. I would really make sure that, you know, you have milestones that are proving your story, right? So what does that mean? I would stay focused initially and then widen the aperture. So whether it's a geo, whether it's a sector that you're investing into, whether it's um, a thesis like, oh, we're only going to back repeat entrepreneurs, like whatever is your uh, secret sauce or whatever is your pitch, I would really make sure that your first investments are proving the point, right? So... We're great at backing second-time entrepreneurs. We've done it already with one and two. You know, please give me money to like do it with fifteen more. It will help the trajectory. I think if you start too broad, like I'm gonna do everything SaaS across Europe, like that might be too broad. For example, in this market, right? Like the, how many now? There are a lot of people that understand SaaS, like. Is that specific enough? So um, it is for people that have been around for decades, like 0.9, that are great, great franchises. But if you were a very new emerging manager, I would try to pick something a little bit narrow, just to show that I can be I can be good at doing it, and then build from there and say, okay, now that I've proven this in you know in 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 I don't know. In Estonia, let me go and do Baltics. Or oh, now no, I've proven this in you know this part of you know healthcare SAS, Then I'm gonna widen, if if that makes sense.
2: Lucille, we are up on time, so let's head on into the quickfire.
1: <laughs> and now
2: the
0: quickfire. <laughs> Lucille, what advice would you give your 10-year younger self?
1: Take more risks. I know it sounds funny as a VC because our job is to take risks, but I wish I had taken even more risk. And that's also why I love working with founders, because all they do is taking risks, taking that, you know, hard pass, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, I really, I really respect them for that.
0: What are, and this might be a tiny bit repetitive, but what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe for now fundraising?
1: I would say keep it up. Uh, I think this year might sound a bit uh, discouraging if you're out there raising because I think a lot of the institutional LPs haven't been investing at all. I truly think that 2024 is going to be better. Maybe not on the exits, but certainly like the market, you can see like, you know, more transactions, more liquidity. So I I do think that, you know, some of the best vintages will be, you know, those done now. So, you know, don't give up. Uh, And uh, yeah, good luck. Good luck.
0: What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in inventor?
1: Yeah, the, the most counterintuitive thing I, I've learned is is really that this concept of valuation is uh, is a bit like, uh, you know, a false, precise concept. So, uh, you know, my, my learnings have been that the valuation of something is really what people are prepared to pay at that given point. And... You know, it could be if no one wants it, it could be zero. If people, you know, really want it, it could be high. So I keep reading like articles about why wow, like Adobe paid fifty times for for Figma. It is insane, you know. Or equally, like this shouldn't be trading at this multiple. And you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not sure there is like you know a precise science. Like it's just a given point in time, and there's no there's no point in debating it too much. I think it's just. You know you just need to take it as it is and i think it's an important learning because uh, back to what we were saying about unlearning a lot of my career like in the initial days in finance you learn a lot about the comps and you know how to like do multiples and it's it's funny because even at the public market you realize you know i think some companies that were trading 40 times a year ago are now trading six times right so you know same company same market probably like has grown his revenue and the market has changed tremendously. So I think what, what I've, you know, what I've learned in all these years is that, you know, valuation can be a very like, you know, spot um, intent about what people are prepared to pay for something. And I wouldn't give it too much importance. I, I I know it's, it sounds funny because a lot of what we do is around like, you know, negotiating term sheets and valuation, but, you know, it, it, I think people should um, realize that, you know, there's, there's not like huge science into it.
2: So anyone out there, if you are with a bunch of grit but no internship at Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, <laughs> head on over to your email and send Lucille a message. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the European VC Podcast. Do drop us a review, follow the pod and subscribe at EU.VC.
1: Thanks for having me. This
0: would down, down, down. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an ally. This, this is a union of values.
1: Of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New new beginnings.
2: Let's start acting.